There's a picture that used to hang on my wall. It was taken around the year 2000, right when I became a Christian. In that picture, there's eight or nine friends. We all had uh, kind of grown up together, kind of at least gone to high school together, and we had we had all made professions of faith in Christ at about the same time. God had done some miraculous things in the year 2000 in, in my hometown where I came to the Lord and um, dozens of other people did. It was really a, a mini revival. It was, it was pretty incredible. That picture, and that I remember that day when it was taken, we had all just finished singing about Jesus. We had finished hearing a message about Jesus. We had taken the Lord's Supper together. It was a sweet time, and we we had this, this picture to, to remember it. And as the years have gone on, all of the people in that picture have fallen into sin, including me. There wasn't one who had walked perfectly since that day. A number of those friends had uh, repented and been restored. Several others are still straying, and it's confusing as to where they are with the Lord, and some have outright denied Him. Those sort of scenes for me, I don't know about for you, are very confusing sometimes. Confusing because I don't know what to think about my friends, and confusing because I don't know what to think about myself. And I look back on those days and all the things I wish I could say to myself about don't do this and don't do that and be careful here. Well, this morning as we come to Luke chapter 22, the scriptures are going to give us a similar picture. It's a picture of Jesus with his disciples on the night that he is being betrayed, but it's right before he's betrayed. And this scene will have the picture of of his men with him, and they will all fall. One of their falls, Judas's, will be quite unlike the others. He will not recover. Another will be quite different than the others. Peter, he will be restored. And as we come and we look at this text, we are going to see certainly the glories of Jesus, but we're also going to see how the glories of Jesus are intended to help those who profess faith in Christ to persevere in that faith that we might not fall and not be restored. The big idea this morning is this, that we must watch and pray so that we will not be overcome by the temptation to forsake Jesus. We must watch and pray so that we will not be overcome by the temptation to forsake Jesus. As we come to this text, beginning in verse 22, we are in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. It is Thursday. On that Passion Week, he has just eaten the Passover meal with his disciples and proclaimed that he is the fulfillment of it. And what we're going to see now in verses uh, 22 through the end are, are five scenes that kind of unfold the evening for us and highlight, or really shine light on this path that is leading to the cross in which Jesus will be crucified for sinners like you and for me. 
So what we're going to do is we're just going to go through these scenes and watch them unfold. The first scene you might title, Greatness. Greatness. Where the disciples are going to be arguing about who is the greatest. The context of this is, is really important. If you look back at verse uh, 22, Jesus has just talked about Him being betrayed. And then verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them could it be who is going to do this? That's the context of their, their conversation here about greatness. Verse 24, A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise uh, exercise, uh, lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So as we saw, Jesus has just spoken about a betrayer being among them. And the disciples are trying to figure out who it is. And you can just imagine what that conversation was going like. Well, it's not me because of this. And uh, well, it's certainly not me because of, of this. And they, this conversation ensues in which they're, you know, breaking out their, their righteous credentials and all the reasons why they wouldn't be the one who would betray Jesus. Now, of course, this isn't the first time the disciples have had this sort of debate among themselves. You remember right before the triumphal entry, their timing's always impeccable on this, right before the triumphal entry, they're having this conversation about who's the greatest among them. Which I think one of the things just to notice in that is that this appears to be an abiding sin for the disciples. This desire in them to be something, to be thought of as great, as special, as above the others. Well, Jesus here interjects and he exposes their misunderstanding of greatness and that actually their understanding of greatness has not been shaped by their three years with him, but rather it's been shaped very much by the world in which they live. They have a worldly understanding of, of greatness. Because among the Gentiles, meaning the, the non-Jews, the unbelievers, greatness is seen how? The ability to, to dominate, to control others, to exalt yourself and to be able to solidify your power in order to further your agenda. But Jesus says, that's not how we run things here with me in my kingdom. 22 verse 26, but not so with you. Jesus says, in my kingdom, we do things differently. Greatness is found not in how others can be, yeah, be building blocks on which you can stand, but rather how you can stoop low and take the unwanted and the unnoticed position of a servant. You see, seeking greatness according to the world has, has really two dangerous effects, which we see right here in this text. The, the first is, is that it, it dishonors God. Remember again the context of them arguing about who the greatest is? 
Jesus has just told them he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be tortured to death. And all they can think about is their greatness. In the face of Christ's impending glory, all they can see is their own greatness. It's almost embarrassing how much ambition blinds us to the glory of God. They have this worldly understanding. It's, it's, dishonored. it's dishonoring to Jesus. But it's also dishonoring to others. It's dishonoring to others. When, when we seek greatness according to the world's ways, people become pawns to be used to further agendas rather than fellow image bearers who are to be loved and served and protected. I mean, think about it. When you're, if you're kind of scrapping for some position... What's the temptation in your heart toward those who might be in your way? Is it, is it to just start pointing out to everyone, hey, by the way, I'm here for this too, but this brother or sister, they're pretty amazing. Is that, what, is, that what, is that what's natural in your heart? No, we start scrutinizing them, don't we? We begin to maximize their, their faults and criticize them, which over time what that's going to produce is division and discord. You don't love others when you're competing with them. At least not in this sense. Which I hope you just you catch that, that, that pursuing greatness in, in the world's way, it is an affront to the great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. Both of them go out the window because life is about you and you seeking to be something. Well, Jesus calls his disciples to have sobriety of mind about greatness here. And, and I think it's important to, to notice that Jesus is not calling his disciples to do something that he's not doing. He's not just pontificating about greatness here. He is the incarnation of greatness, and he's modeling it for them. In John chapter 13, where this, this same scene is occurring, you remember what Jesus did at the beginning of the meal? He stepped away from a seat of honor and he took the position of a servant and he washed the disciples' feet. Including Judas. He washed all their feet knowing that those same feet in just a little while would run away from him. The king of kings became the servant of sinners. The exalted one, the one who eternally shares the Father's glory, who's praised by angels, uses his authority to serve. To stoop low and wash feet, which is a picture of what he's going to do when he goes to the cross and lays down his life and sheds blood that will wash away our sins. Jesus came as a servant. And one of the things I think is really important just to notice as we think about application of this idea is that no one, no one is excluded from an opportunity for true greatness. If, if you will humbly serve others for the glory of God and the good of others, then you can be great in the kingdom of God. This does not require some sort of theological degree or intellectual pedigree. It's not based on platform or uh, prominence. It's not based on position in church or lack thereof. 
This is something that anyone can do. Greatness in God's kingdom is available to all. Seeing and loving Jesus is what fuels this sort of servant leadership for others. You see, in the kingdom of God, we are free to love people, not positions. To serve others, not just ourselves. To share any glory that God may give to us, not just hoard it for ourselves. Greatness in God's kingdom is humility and servanthood that lays down your life for the good of others. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, anyone can pursue that. Now what he does here is he follows this with a word of encouragement for them. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus here commends the fact that they have remained faithful to him, and he promises that before them awaits a day of glory and a kingdom of glory. It's assumed that by this point, Judas has already left, and he's speaking to the eleven who remain. Now, just two quick notes on this. The first is that this is absolutely remarkable that Jesus is going to give him a shout out here. This is it's almost baffling that, that Jesus is going to encourage them right here. The disciples were constantly failing, constantly needing to be corrected. They were imperfectly following Jesus. He knows they're all about to to forsake him. And yet he still encourages them. Which I think is encouraging for us. Because everybody who follows Jesus does so imperfectly. And you can still be pleasing to him. Even in your imperfect obedience. This is what Hebrews 11, I think for me, is constantly an encouragement. When you read through there, it doesn't highlight all of the failures and sins of of the saints of old. But it shows brothers and sisters who imperfectly trusted God and their direction was toward Him. And this is what has marked these disciples. He wants them to know what true greatness is. Now after this discussion about greatness, he moves to our second scene, which is a scene of warning. Of warning. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, who is Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. An hour of testing is approaching, and Jesus has a sober warning for Simon Peter. Satan prowls near, and his desire is for you. Now, the the original language here... um, highlights something for us that's often hidden in our, our English translation here, is that there is both a, a, a corporate 
and a personal aim of Satan's attacks. The, the, the words you there are a couple times plural and a couple times singular. So I'm, I'm going to read it and, and highlight it for you. Satan has demanded to have you, plural, that he may sift you, plural, like wheat, but I have prayed for you, singular, Peter, that you, your faith, Peter, singular, may not fail. Satan here requests permission, even demands it, to sift the disciples. Likely means that Satan has gone to the Father, similar to the book of Job's, the book of Job, and requested permission to assault the disciples and to, to sift them. The word sift, it means a, it refers, it's an agricultural term that is, describes the, the vigorous shaking that separates uh, the, the, the kernel of wheat from the dead chaff. It's, it's part of what you would do during the, the harvest. You would take a winnowing fork and you, you would shake it in the wind and the kernels would fall down and the chaff would blow away. Satan's desiring to sift the disciples, to shake them. And, and I think it's important to notice why he wants to do it, what the aim of his sifting is about. Look at uh, verse 32. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I think Jesus tells us Satan's goal here is to call the, cause the, the disciples and Peter's faith here to fail. He wants to shake them in such a way that their faith will prove to be chaff, that it will prove to be false, and that they will be blown away, that they're not living wheat, but rather they are dead chaff like Judas. Because it's important to notice that Satan labors to sift our faith. He hates faith. Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God, and this is why he hates faith in Christ so much. He wants to do anything he can to make you not believe. That's why, I mean, all of his questions in the Bible are all, did God really say? Are you really God's son? All of the temptations that we hear him whispering are around trying to provoke doubt in what God has said and who God is. He hates faith. He wants to stir doubt and provoke fear and bring discouragement. The goal of every temptation is to make faith fail. His aim ultimately is apostasy, the renunciation of Christ. And if, if Satan can't get someone to renounce Jesus, then he's going to do whatever he can to, 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 to strive to, to shackle them with guilt and shame and regret and to demoralize them to the point where they're unwilling to even try anymore. He wants them to disbelieve the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and to believe that, yeah, but for me, I am condemned. He's an accuser. He's an adversary. 
Well, Jesus tells uh, Peter, Satan is coming against them, but Jesus is for them. Verse 32, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see, as Satan labors to sift our faith, to destroy it, Jesus labors to strengthen our faith that it might endure. That though our faith may be fickle and failing, Jesus is faithful. He is full of faith-sustaining power. Jesus is stronger than Satan's attacks. And I think it should be so encouraging for us here to see that Jesus is not passive in the midst of this temptation. He's not sitting back saying, like, let's see how it goes, y'all. Good luck. I'll be back. I'll be up in glory. Not at all. No. He fights for us. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's a promise. That's what he does. Doesn't mean we can't fall into temptation. Peter will. But it does mean that he asks the Father to do whatever is necessary to preserve his faith. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus and... For those of us who know him, the reason that we love him is because of the way he died for our sins on the cross. It's a a wonderful, glorious reason to love the Lord Jesus. And the certainty of, of Jesus as our suffering Savior is only equaled by the sweetness of Jesus as our interceding Savior. So he doesn't just die on the cross, but he rises and he intercedes for us. He was interceding for Peter there before the cross, but for us now who are in him, he he intercedes even at this moment. We have a great hope that Jesus not only died for us, but he ever lives, Hebrews 7.25 says, to make intercession for us. And again, we see here that he, he prays for all of them, but but specifically for, for, for Peter, for you, which, again, I think for us should be encouraging. Jesus knows each of his, and he prays for you if you are in him. If you are in Christ by faith, he prays for you. Not just church generally, true, but you individually as well. And Jesus was certain that the Father would answer this prayer to keep faith. Verse 32, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that the Father would not allow Peter to be snatched out of his hand. Yet he also knew that Peter needed grace to endure. Now why do you think he prayed particularly for Peter here? I don't know either. It doesn't tell us. But what I'm guessing is that he is, he's too assured of his ability to resist Satan's temptations. I mean, look at what he says right there. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, Peter certainly, most certainly spoke from a heart full of good intentions right here. I mean, how many of you, how many of us have said before the Lord, oh Lord, I will never 
do that again. Lord, I will, I will never say that again. I will never touch that again. I will never look at that again. I will never go there again. I will never do that again. And then what? Far too often we, we fall right back in. Certainly there are resolutions that hold all the way to heaven. Praise God that He gives grace for those. But it appears that Peter's overestimation of his, his strength may have been what made him so vulnerable. He was sure. Listen, I don't, all them? Maybe. But not me, Jesus. I'm with you. Prison, death, I'm, your, I'm with you. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let us always be cautious of saying that I will never before God. I'm not saying that we should not resolve against sin with all of the grace that He supplies, but I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in many lives over the years that as soon as you think you're above some sin, You set yourself up to fall into a sin of similar sort. I'm not saying it always happens. I'm just saying there is a pattern that I've noticed over the years. Well, Peter here announces his allegiance, but Jesus foresees Peter's downfall. Verse 32, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. I mean, this would have been unthinkable for Peter. But it will be unforgettable for him later. The third scene is one of preparation. Preparation, verse 35 through 38. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is enough. Now, what Jesus is doing in these, these verses is he's preparing them for life when he's gone. I encourage you, maybe sometime later on today, we have no, likely no community groups and no evening service tonight, no members meeting. I encourage you to find some time this evening to read John chapter 13 through, maybe through the end. It might really be a blessing for you. You get a window into some of this. But 13 through 17, we get a lot of insight into other conversations that are going on at this, this time. I think it would bless, bless your soul. But from this text, there's, there's three observations. The first is, um, is that they have been provided for in the past. They've been provided for in the past. He's, he's telling them to remember back in chapters 9 and 10 when he sent the disciples out that they took very few provisions with them, but that they were supplied for in full. They were, and they were generally well-received. There were some who certainly weren't, and they dusted, or they knocked the, the dust off their, their shoes, but, 
But what this was intended to do was to stir their faith that, that past provision gives confidence for future mission. He wants to remember that they have been provided for in the past. But secondly, they must prepare for persecution in the future. They must prepare for persecution here in the future. Notice here he says, but now, there in verse 36. So things are going to be different in light of what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is about to be killed, and most of them are as well. Now, the call here for a sword isn't a call to, to, to fight. It's, it's most likely um, about uh, defense. So, so take, take money to support yourselves. Take a knapsack with some Lunchables in it to supply yourselves. And then take a sword to defend yourselves. Some would say it's just symbolic. He's talking about the sword of the Spirit. I don't think so. But, you know, we'll find out. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. They're going out into a world that's going to hate them. There's going to be beasts and robbers, and they may need the sword for protection. It's most certainly, though, not for offensive use. This is not about advancing the kingdom of God with the sword. Well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, because two swords would not be enough. If Jesus was planning on going, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of, anyway, if he was trying to think of something I could say publicly, if he's planning on going in and killing everybody, going to go crusades, he'd have told them all, everybody get a sword, two, how about two for everybody, all right, we're packing some heat, we're going up into Jerusalem, that's not, that's not what he's doing. And also, he's going to rebuke Peter for using his sword here in just a moment. He's going to tell Peter and Matthew that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So it's most certainly not that at all. You also see it never in Acts using a sword. Thirdly, third thing to notice here, and, and probably most importantly, well, certainly most importantly, is that Jesus has come to fulfill the Scripture. What Jesus wants them to know is that all this opposition you're about to face is because they oppose me just as it has been written. Verse 37, I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered by the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's quoting here from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 12 specifically. This whole Isaiah 53 is a, is a portrait of Messiah being killed for sinners, and that everybody's going to misunderstand it. They're going to think that God is crushing him for his own sin, but the fact is that he's being crushed for a sinner's sin. Isaiah 53, you should read that one later as well. You see, but Jesus knew who he was and why he came. He came from heaven. He took humanity upon himself. And though he had no sin, he went to the cross to receive what sinners deserved. They deserved judgment from God. We transgressed. We stepped over the line of God's law and disregarded his lordship over us. And what we should deserve is judgment. Or what we do deserve is judgment. What we should get is judgment. But Jesus came to be numbered among the transgressors, to be crucified like a criminal between two criminals. 
to take the punishment that criminals like you and me who have sinned against our maker so rightly deserve. This is the good news of the gospel. This whole thing that Jesus is is moving toward right now is the good news that though we have transgressed God's command, though we have stepped over God's will and His ways as revealed in His Word, though we deserve death and judgment, Jesus stood in our place. He would not run like all the disciples did in faithlessness, but rather He would run to the Father with surrendered heart and then to the cross where He would be crucified for sinners like you and like me. And then He would go into the grave and then three days later He would rise up and He would forgive any, no matter where they had been or what they had done. This is why He came. And though this is why he came, Jesus being a man still struggled with it. It was hard to go and endure what he was going to endure. Which brings us to the fourth scene, that of prayer. Of prayer. Beginning in verse 39. He came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." This scene occurs at the Mount of Olives. It was a familiar place of fellowship between Jesus and His disciples and a familiar place of prayer between the Father and the Son. John 15-17 through specifically gives more window into this. Again, I encourage you to to look at 15-17. through Chapter 17 specifically, a high priestly prayer as it's been called most likely occurs here in this, this garden. One of the things I think is supposed to stand out to us there in verse 39 is that he went to the Mount of Olives as it was his custom. It was his custom to go there. This was Jesus' hangout spot. It was a familiar place. Where's Jesus? I can't find him. He's probably up to Mount Olives. Let's go. The fact that this is such a familiar place to the disciples makes what's about to happen there all the more sinister. You see, Judas knows where Jesus will be because Jesus has so often been there. It's this place of prayer. It's where the teaching so often has happened. 
Laughter together. Sorrow together. It's a place where Jesus' divine glory and true humanity have been seen in full. At the Mount of Olives, there's a small park called Gethsemane. It's translated something like the place of crushing. The reason it's called that is because olives from the Mount of Olives were harvested there and you would take the first fruits to Gethsemane. And there you would crush the first fruits of the olives and out from the olives would come this precious oil that would be used in the temple to shine light into the darkness so the people of God would have hope in the God who would dwell among them. And here at the Mount of Olives, in a little spot called Gethsemane, we have Jesus, who is about to be crushed, not just by betrayals, but by the very, the very wrath of God. And out from Him will come oil, as it were, that would shine light in the darkness, that sinners may see the way of salvation. Jesus will be crushed here where many olives have been crushed before. In verse 40, I think we're supposed to notice here that Jesus knows that the hour is, is drawing near. Judas has already certainly left, left the temple with his entourage. He's en route, heading toward the garden. And though And though Jesus is the target, do you notice where Jesus' concern is? It's for his disciples. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Even in his darkest hour, his attention is on them. He's taught them to pray so many times. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. It's time to double down on that prayer. Because evil is on the way. While they're praying, Jesus must also pray. He steps away about a stone's throw and he knelt down. One of the other Gospels says he is on his face. Picture of exhaustion, certainly, as the God-man. But also of reverence and humility and submission before the one whom he bows. He's pouring his heart out in prayer here to the Father. And Jesus' request to the Father is simple. Father, if there is any other way to glorify your name and to save your people and for your justice to be satisfied and for mercy to be extended, if there's any other way that allows me to not drink the cup of your wrath, if there is any other way, please tell me, show me now. I think it's important for us to notice what it is that Jesus desires to avoid here. 
in case I don't come back, I will say that it's important. Some of you feel very uncomfortable with this sort of language because you rightly have a high view of Jesus as God. But you've got to have an equally high view of Jesus as, human, as a human. He was a human. God took on flesh and was a, was a man. He experienced everything you experience, yet without sin. And as, as, the, as this man, the God-man who's suffering here, you've got to see what he desires to avoid is not, he's not afraid of the mocking, per se, or the false accusations, or the betrayals of Judas, or the denials of Peter, or the abandonment of friends, and not the beating, and not the flogging, and not the torture of being nailed to a cross and suffocating to death there. That will all be horrific. But that's not the pain that he cries out to avoid here. What he fears is the cup. He fears the cup. He had told his disciples earlier, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill kill the soul in hell. That cup of wrath will be poured eternally on, on unbelievers in hell. Well, here, Jesus, the faithful one, the sinless one, knows that that cup is coming for him. Psalm 75, 8 says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Revelation 14, 10 speaks of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. Jesus is requesting an alternative plan in which the wrath can be appeased, but He knows he knows what awaits Him. This has been the plan from eternity past. The book of Acts tells us that the cross was predestined before the foundation of the world. This is why He came. And He resolved to endure it. And He prays immediately, Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. He surrenders here his human will to the eternal divine decree. Jesus here displays true love for the Father and for sinners. Now, I just want to pause and and say that me trying to help parse out some of the, the ways that this experience is happening for Jesus as a human and Jesus as, as the Son of God. Yeah, there's lots of counsels on this and there's people get really into weird stuff trying to figure all that out. So I don't think we need to go beyond what is written. I'm simply trying to explain the complexities of what's happening here. There's Trinitarian mystery that we don't understand that's happening here. But what we are supposed to see here is that he is enduring the cross. And as he does this, this is the supreme act of service to be the ultimate example of what Jesus called his disciples to do back in verse 27. He shows them what true greatness is here. That God would become man and suffer. That men might be reconciled unto God. 
Verse 43, notice here that the Father sends an angel to minister and to strengthen Jesus. Again, we see here Christ's humanity on full display. (laughs) Isn't this crazy? He created this angel. You ever think about that? He created this angel, and then this angel comes and ministers to him. This angel likely relying assurance from the Father that enduring with the eternal plan of the cross would be worth it. In John 17, we see that Jesus is praying and he knows that the glory that he's about to share with the Father once again that he's had for all eternity is right before him. He knows that the sinners he's about to die for will be brought unto himself and reconciled to the Father. This is why Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What drove Jesus to the cross through all of this was the joy on the other side of being with the Father and sharing in his glory once again and for us to now share in that glory as redeemed sinners who would be freed from sin and reconciled to the Father to enjoy him forever. Well, verse 44, Jesus' agony moves him to earnest prayer. He begins here to feel the weight of what it will be like for he who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. His true atoning sacrifice will occur on the cross, but here in Gethsemane, Jesus feels the weight of the Father filling his cup with wrath that will soon be served to him. He no longer prays for the cup to pass, but now prepares to drink it. One of the reasons I've highlighted the humanity of Jesus so much as we've gone through here is not just because I think the Scripture does, but because here we are instructed as children of God of how to pray. Jesus here is praying intensely. It says so much that uh, the the sweat looks like drops of blood coming from his forehead. There's so much of it. But what we see is he's teaching us to pray to the Father honestly. Jesus is so very honest here. And humbly. And surrendered. Friends, all of our prayers, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our desires must be submitted to the fathers whose ways are better, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus teaches us that here. And it's in that is it, it is in praying that way with a humble, surrendered heart that we are guarded from temptation. Because when there's things that you hold on to, and you're not surrendering to God, it hardens your heart against Him. It calluses your heart against Him. It distances yourself from Him. Jesus teaches us to pray. Well, verse 45, when He rose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Certainly this night has been full of exhausting emotions and the disciples had attempted to pray but they they passed out under the weight of Jesus' words. 
And here he awakens them. Because the betrayer is near. And literally, all hell is about to break loose. Verse 47. The betrayals. Plural. Betrayals. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man for the kiss? So no sooner than Jesus had warned the disciples to pray, the silence of night was broken here. They were alone no longer. We're going to see in a moment that this crowd is filled with soldiers and religious officials. They have swords and they have clubs. And Judas looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at Judas. And Jesus says to him, will you come and give me a greeting and pose as if you are coming in peace? What was that like for Jesus? Three years he had been with Judas. Been nothing but faithful to him. And here he betrays him with a kiss. What was that like for Judas? Was he all in at that moment? Or was he already having second thoughts? Or was it... I think it's important to note, by the way, that sin approaches you the same way. It approaches as a friend... But it always has sinister intent. It comes with it, all of hell, to consume you. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, John rats out Peter here, it's Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, likely swinging for his head, but he got his ear. 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus heals this high priest servant, which, by the way, the Gospel of John tells us his name is Malchus. Which the reason that's usually included, the assumption is, is he became a believer. It's an assumption and it's, 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 it's history, but it would... I'd like to talk to that guy in heaven. How was, how was that? Well, Peter, he was trying to take off my head, and I'm glad he didn't because he got my ear, and then Jesus healed me, and that made me believe. I think what's important to notice here is that Jesus' kingdom will not advance with the sword, but rather it will come through the suffering ultimately by the sword. John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, uh, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink? The cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus is resolved to drink of the cup. Well, verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as, a robber, as against a robber with these swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus here exposes their evil. He says, You could have taken me in the light any time. But you work in the darkness. 
Verse 54, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down together. Peter sat among them. Now why is Peter here following at a distance? Well, he's most certainly afraid. All of Jesus' words about being handed over and put to death are being fulfilled right in front of his eyes. Peter had, Peter had likely imagined that at such a moment he would have responded quite a bit better than he was. That he would have stood with Jesus. But I think we see here that the temptation to fear is so powerful. And Peter's a prominent disciple, and he had just taken off the high priest's servant's ear, so he's kind of a marked man, right? And it's been, it's been a long day. They've been up for almost 24 hours, except for the brief nap, nap that they just had when they were supposed to be praying. They are exhausted physically and emotionally and spiritually. It's a perfect recipe for a fall. Verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else said to him, or saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of an hour, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The pressure of fear had overtaken Peter. All his resolutions had proved to be powerless, his strength had become weakness. To the point now where a few questioning strangers, even a servant girl, were enough to bring him down. Jesus' prediction of a rooster crowing came to pass. I can only imagine when that bird cried out what it did to Peter's heart. Must have startled him. He's certainly not thinking soberly or he wouldn't have done this. Must have shocked his heart. Likely brought back the words that Jesus had spoken. The promises that Peter had broken. And then verse 61. A scene that words fail to express. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. There is the Lord. Shackled. Mark tells us by this point he has been beaten and bloodied. There, Jesus, bearing his own pain, paused and looked over into the eyes of a beloved friend who had just three times denied that he even knew him.
and it broke Peter's heart. It broke his heart. Verse 62, he went out and whipped bitterly. The eyes of love incarnate had met Peter's eyes. He looked upon this one who had never done Peter any wrong, who had done nothing but love him. He had called him. He had taught him. They had walked on water together. He had lifted him up out of the water. They'd broken bread together. He'd washed his feet. Peter denied Jesus with clean feet. Peter's response here is is the way that a Christian responds to sin when they sin. It breaks their heart. And I think it's important to know that Jesus' look here was not one of, of, of hateful condemnation, but rather it was one of conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. Showing him that he had erred grievously. Sin is intended to make us sorrowful because it is a personal offense against God. This is what makes sin so grievous. In our final moments, what I want to do is I want us to to think about the differences between what happened with Judas and Peter. You see, Judas and Peter committed similar, grievous sins on the same night. Judas denied Jesus and sold him for silver and then led a a lynch mob to come and to take him away to death. Peter denied Jesus publicly. Not once. Not twice. Three times. All while Jesus was enduring His darkest hour. Both Judas and Peter responded with grief and sorrow but of very different sorts. Matthew recounts for us Judas' response. Verse 3 of Matthew 27, when Judas saw Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Judas sinned. He felt sorrow. But then he sinned further and took his own life. Peter was also grieved. He too went out and wept bitterly, but it was for a very different reason. He was grieved that he had sinned against Jesus. You see, Peter's sins were vertically oriented. They were about his relationship with God. That grieved him, whereas Judas was grieved that he sinned, but it was very much self-oriented. These are two very different kinds of grief with two very different kinds of results. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 puts it this way, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there is a sorrow over sin that is not godly. That is about self. It's about consequences. It's about how I hate how what I have done has wrecked my life or my reputation or my relationships. I hate that. I hate how I feel. And it stops there. It becomes just about self. The other sorrow over sin is quite different. Is it, about, it is, again, about, about God. That I have, I have grieved God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not that it hasn't affected others and there won't be reconciliation needed there, but, but primarily grieved by the fact that you've turned against God. Both Peter and Judas were unfaithful. Both men wept, but that is all that they had in common. Judas was sorrowful over his sin, but he hung himself rather than return to the Savior. Peter was sorrowful over his sin, but he returned to Jesus who was hung for him. Do not allow your sin to drive you away from the Savior in despair. Judas did this. He was so consumed with himself that he not only committed physical suicide, but because he died in unbelief, committed spiritual suicide. To where he would stand before God unforgiven forever. Now, to be clear that suicide in and of itself is not the unforgivable sin. It is a grievous sin. Self-murder is a grievous sin. It is something that a believer can do. But it is something a believer must never do. In recent days, I've heard several accounts of suicide. And I just want to say publicly... I think in God's kind providence, this text has come on this day, and I just want to say that if you ever are despairing over your sin, please do not take things into your own hands and do not try and take your own life. Jesus is a Savior of sinners who is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. And this church is not filled with perfect people, but we are, it's a filled with people who will walk with you We may not understand what you're going through, but we will seek to empathize and walk with you. Please, even today, if you came in here and this was your last-ditch effort, don't leave without talking to someone, please. Rather, let your sin drive you to Jesus who died to forgive it. Jesus will always receive a repentant person. So look to Him for forgiveness. Peter learned that this indeed is true. Jesus had promised Peter that He would eventually restore him. And He did. Back in verse 32, He said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter would recover from his fall. It wouldn't be easy. And in chapter 21 of John, you see how 
how hard he has conversations with Jesus that are real and convincing, uh, convicting and, and, and difficult, but he was restored. Peter would sin again in the book of Acts, we see it, but he keeps repenting and he keeps growing and he keeps leaning into the grace of God all the way home. And it's very interesting how much this scene will impact the rest of Peter's days. If you read First and Second Peter, you see that it's marked by these moments. That he will now minister out of humility and brokenness and sobriety. I wonder where Jesus, or Peter came up with this. First Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, friends, we have a God who can, in spite of your sin, use your sin and fill up the the chunks that it has taken out of you with His divine grace that you will be able to minister out of that and to help others. It happened with Peter. And it happens with all of God's children. So as we go, watch. Knowing that there is a tempter who is ever plotting Do not watch alone, but watch with brothers and sisters. But watch. Pray. Pray to God earnestly that you will not lose sobriety of heart. This sort of prayer, pray honestly and deeply and with full surrender, cultivating humility before God. And thirdly, repent. If you sin, turn to Jesus. As 1 John 2 says, I have written these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but those of the whole world. Jesus died for your sins, and he rose, and he intercedes even now for you, no matter what you have done. And it is that beholding him by faith that fuels love and obedience that would eventually lead Peter to lay down his own life for the cause of Christ. May God give us grace to watch and to pray until we see the Lord Jesus face to face. Let's go to him now.